Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. What we're going to do is dive into a conversation here on the great unspoken. And we can do that going back to the giant David Ricardo of the early 19th century who changed our language about how the haves gain advantage. Stiglitz is of Columbia. The university professor, Joseph Stiglitz, joins us this morning. At the bottom of your wonderful essay on inflation and project syndicate, Joe Stiglitz, you talk about monopoly rents. I would extend that even more to monopsonistic rents, which is an economic mumbo-jumbo you teach for the haves gained. How much did the haves gain off the fiscal largesse of this pandemic? Oh, an enormous amount. Uh, You know, it's got a lot of attention that while so many Americans were living hand-to-mouth, money that was going to them just enabled them to get by, uh, the people at the top were making literally billions and billions and billions of dollars. So one of the things in that article that you mentioned that I advocate is we're going through a very tough time. Uh, uh, Our prices are going up. It's a little bit hard for those at the bottom and the middle. Why don't we have a excess profits tax on those companies that have done very well in the pandemic and use the revenue for that to help those who are really struggling by. One time uh, a tax just to, uh, you might call it a pandemic inflation adjustment tax. And, And Joe, in a Lockean America, which has moved on from that kind of language to love of the individual, let's say you can't get through an excess profits tax. What's the second best thing to do? Well, I can tell you what the second best thing not to do. Uh, uh, It is not a good thing to raise interest rates to kill the economy uh, in order to beat what is still moderate inflation, 7%. And if you look at those inflation numbers, they're all distorted by, uh, you know, a huge increase in the energy price. That's not going to continue. The price of oil went from below normal levels because of the pandemic to more normal levels. They're not going to go to stratospheric levels. And used car prices. We know how to make cars, but there's a shortage of chips, a shortage in part caused by a fire in Japan. So why kill the economy? Won't solve the problem. Bill Hildebrand got it absolutely right. There's, there's an important distinction here within what you're saying, which is as you look toward the Fed and the way that they should handle policy, they should continue to rely on, mon- on uh, fiscal policymakers to try to help the lower class, but that their policies are more helpful to the lower income individuals and they are harmful in terms of widening the gap, fueling market gains that have really led to the bigger dispersion between the wealthy and the poor. Can you explain that? Because a lot of people view the Fed as the instrument of widening this wealth disparity? Well, uh, the Fed, uh, whatever it does, has distribution effects. I mean, we have to admit that. It tries to pretend that it's absolutely neutral, but what it does 
has big distributional effects. When it lowered the interest rate, as it did beginning in uh, the Great Recession in 2008, the big gainers were those in equity markets. Losers included those who uh, elderly people who had put their money in T-bills. The return they got on their T-bills went to zip. Uh, so they were the people who lost and, and the owners of the equity overwhelmingly, evidence overwhelmingly those in the upper 1%, they did very well. Now, at the current juncture, if you raise the interest rates, it will slow down the economy. And the first order impact is going to be on unemployment. People who might otherwise have gotten jobs won't get those jobs. But, but, but Professor Stiglitz, how can you say that that's really a risk at raising rates 50, 75, even 100 basis points at a time when they're near zero? And you have a labor market that's so tight that you have vastly more job openings than you do people to fill them. Well, first of all, the, the numbers in the unemployment rate don't give a full picture of what is going on in the labor market. We are millions short of the number of jobs that we would have had had we continued the pace of job creation. <clears throat> well, I think we've lost response to a population. Yeah, we're going to leave it there. I think with the technology, with Professor Stiglitz, we'll leave it there and we'll have him on again. I had at least four more questions as well. I want you to think of Bank of America and the long-term roll-up of many banks into one giant bank. That could be GlaxoSmithKline. Yes, it's Glaxo from way back, and then Welcome and SmithKline Beecham in there as well. But it's essentially a pharmaceutical and consumer roll-up that is challenged. Emma Walmsley is of L'Oreal, and of course, the chief executive officer of GlaxoSmithKline. She and John Farrow, in a conversation, John, is Dame Walmsley is under a bit of distress. That is a beautiful introduction, Tom, and thank you for that. Emma, fantastic to have you with us on the program. Let's work through the outlook that we got from earnings this morning. The near-term outlook is good, forecasting earnings from the pharma and vaccines business to rise 12 to 14%. City came out with this in response. GSK's path to a higher multiple remains dependent on solving the post-27 growth rate as opposed to the near-term guidance. What's in the pipeline, Emma, that's going to satisfy those people? Well, first of all, John, thank you for having me. Absolutely delighted to be here today uh, off the back of uh, str announcing strong performance for 2021, an excellent quarter, and really showing momentum across the business as we're building into this landmark year in 2022, when, as you know, uh, we are separating into two exciting growth-oriented uh, companies and delighted to be guiding, as you said, for this year for new GSK Biopharma with a uh, five to seven uh, top line growth rate and 12 to 14 in terms of operating uh, margin growth. And that excludes any contribution uh, from COVID solutions. It's also the first year of the five-year outlook we've given of growing at more than five and more than 10%, which is really a step change in delivery 
for GSK. And at the heart of that is the progress in innovation. When you look back at 2021, we actually grew on new and specialty products by 26%. That's very important momentum. We look forward uh, and see in vaccines, obviously adult vaccination hit by the prioritization of COVID vaccines, but we see Shingrix, uh, a very sizable product for us doubling uh, by 2026. And uh, I'll come back to consumer later, but across our total R&D pipeline, yeah. we have 64 assets, 20, 20, 22 of them are in pivotal stages and seven with big milestones in RSV, in rheumatoid arthritis, in oncology and in hepatitis B. So lots to come. I have to say, reading the transcript from a recent healthcare conference over at JP Morgan and your presentation, when it went to oncology, I found it depressing, Emma depressing how neglected that area of healthcare has been over the last two, three years. Just fixing yeah, that, point. Emma, as Omicron fades, how much of a tailwind is that going to be for you? Well, uh, oncology is one of the areas of specialty medicine that GSK has reinvested in. Remember, one of the most st important strategic shifts we've been driving is towards vaccines and specialty medicines. GSK got out of oncology completely. And then uh, over the last four years, with new talent, uh, uh, some business development moves and uh, homegrown assets as well, we've shown really good growth in oncology and an exciting emerging pipeline uh, too. The tragedy has been over the last two years, as you say, actually diagnosis and surgery rates are down a lot. I think in ovarian cancer, I'll give you that example where we have a tremendous uh, medicine for women facing into a really difficult cancer. Diagnosis and surgery rates are down 20%. So we're all hoping that as uh, the pandemic moves into an endemic stage, we're going to see further growth uh, fueled uh, through, through that and mainly, you know, real impact for patients. We hope we can fix some of that because that needs to happen soon and quickly. Yeah. Emma, you mentioned spinning off the business, splitting in two. Let's talk about how you're going to do that. You've got a plan. You've had a plan. Unilever's got other plans. Have you spoken well, to the CEO about their bid? Well, Have you spoken directly well, with him? We've been very clear and very public since the news on this emerged uh, in our uh, press release statements that obviously GSK's priority, in fact, since we announced the deal with Pfizer several years ago and our intent to demerge, our priority has always been about creating shareholder value. So when these uh, unsolicited offers came in, obviously the board uh, took its responsibilities to review them very seriously, very seriously. And after that, we did uh, reject them unanimously alongside our joint venture partners as well, just for fundamentally undervaluing what we've built in this pure play consumer business and particularly its future prospects for growth. We've had uh, a lot of support uh, and some of it very public from our shareholders who we listen to and talk to a lot about continuing with the plan forward yeah. in terms of a merger that's in a matter of months. And we have a great capital markets day coming up on the 28th of February when we're going to bring a lot more visibility to the above market growth prospects for this business. It's sustainable margin expansion, great cash generation and the truly unique portfolio and great management team. Well, maybe Alan has other plans for the end of the month. Maybe he has other plans to come back. Is he aware of what your price is. I don't expect you to negotiate with me right now, but does he know what your price is? We've been extremely clear that our priority is shareholder value uh, creation. We've never disclosed any kind of price. Our focus is on making sure that uh, we, you know, prioritise uh, our shareholders, that we uh, unlock the balance sheet for GSK and yep. absent uh, a better offer than the, the plan we're working on for the demerger, we're going to stay very focused on executing that success. You know what Elliott Management thinks? This is what they put out in a letter last year. I'm going to allow you to respond to that, Emma, in just a moment. This was the quote from last July. 
This is a firm with, quote, a poor record of operational execution and value creation, leading to skepticism about the company's future and underappreciation of its true potential. For some people, Emma, you are a CEO under pressure at the moment. It's almost five years at the top, five years which have delivered negative returns for the stock. How are you going to keep people like Elliott Management happy? Well, we are very focused on listening and to our shareholders and talking to them. I was brought in to address perennial underperformance uh, for this company. And over the last four years, we've been addressing in a comprehensive way a wholesale transformation of reprioritizing investment in R&D and strengthening the pipeline. That we've definitely seen now with 22 assets in our pipeline in pivotal stage readouts. We have completely uh, reset uh, the group structure with this path forward into separation into two new companies. And most importantly, we're going to see all of that translating into meaningful growth. And we're incredibly excited that this year is going to be the first year of that delivery of more than 5% uh, uh, top line growth and more than double digit bottom line growth, whilst allowing for continued investment in and prioritizing of the pipeline uh, with a great leadership team that's completely committed to delivery for that. So Emma, we're relishing this work. I look forward to seeing that step up performance materialise and catching up with you soon. Thank you for being with us. Emma Wormsley there, the Thanks, CEO John. of GlaxoSmithKline. Right now, what we're going to say is this. The research has gotten better since the crisis, 2007-2008. As a broad statement, research is better. But then there are every once in a while exceptional pieces where you go, well, this ruins my afternoon. I've got to read every word. I do that with Alex Schiller. Danny Newman and Rebecca Patterson at the Bridgewater shop. They wrote a brilliant, brilliant note on the dynamics of what we've got with rate changes and balance sheet changes at our central bank. We're honored that Rebecca Patterson of Bridgewater joins us this morning. Rebecca, congratulations on a thought-provoking note. How does all of this monetary dynamics, think of the mathematics of, say, Richard Claret of Columbia and ex-Fed, how does all of that fold into your guesstimate on what economic growth will do. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Tom. That was um, very kind of you, so early in the morning especially. I'm only kind early in the morning. <laughs> so in terms of the Fed, you know, I, I really think they're in one of the most difficult situations in our lifetimes in that you still have very strong nominal demand. Even if growth moderates a little bit this year, we expect nominal demand is going to be well over. Nominal GDP will be well over consensus expectations. Right. But also you have inflation well over infl uh, over expectations. And, and our view is 12 months from now, CPI is probably going to be closer to a five figure, not the three-ish that consensus right. is looking for. And so what does the Fed do? If they tighten too much, they risk slowing down the economy, starting a recession. They don't want to do that. They're dealing with pandemic-related data, which doesn't give them as much confidence in their view. And they're scarred, I'm being generous here, by 2018. You know, the tightening both rates and quantitative right. tightening got, gave us a 20% <clears throat> sell-off. So they don't want to go too fast, but they also want to make sure inflation expectations don't get de-anchored. So our, our view is that you are going to see more rate hikes than what has been priced in so far over the next couple of years, but not as much as needed to get inflation back down to that 2% target. I love the nominal analysis. It reminds me of Cudlow at Bear Stearns a million years ago.
ago, and I want to take it over to a guy named Dalio, who's looked at the social dynamics, the social aspects of this. His recent interview with David Rubenstein, I thought was illuminating. Rebecca Patterson, if we get a 5% inflation rate, what is the societal dispersion, the effect of 5% inflation between the haves and the have-nots? It's a great point. And I think it's something the Fed is also looking at. Yes. And one of the reasons they're going to lean relatively more on balance sheet rather than rates is because when you raise rates, you are going to hit small businesses relatively more. You are going to hit that lower socioeconomic cohort more because they rely relatively more on credit cards. So that's one of the reasons the Fed would prefer to do a balance of these tools rather than just rate hikes. Um, but, but as we're looking at the different quintiles, if you will, of wealth in the United States today, one good thing, great thing, is that the fiscal transfers we got in 2020 and 2021 have created more wealth for everybody. Um, you have seen wealth at the bottom cohort go up significantly. Their balance sheets are stronger. Their debt levels are <laughs> relatively lower. Um, they're seeing big wage increases. And so high inflation, especially gas prices, energy prices, food prices, those are the big ones. They're definitely going to be a, a, a problem. But at least it's happening against this backdrop where the starting point is so much stronger than it has been coming out of past recessions. This dynamic, however, Rebecca, of negative real wage growth, particularly at the lower income levels, is one of the reasons why people are saying we won't get to that 5% level in 12 months. It'll be much lower than that because realistically the economy will have to slow and we're seeing that in consumer sentiment data. How do you push back against that? Well, I think, I think that we are going to see stronger nominal growth this year for a couple of reasons. One is the reopening itself. So as Omicron continues to fade, hopefully, and hopefully we have no new variants, we are going to see people going out to restaurants more, spending more on travel, et cetera. And yes, part of that is a shift from goods to services, but overall, we think that continues to support growth. I think even more importantly, we think we'll continue to see an inventory rebuild. Now, how it affects GDP is a little bit wonky. I don't want to go into that right now. But I do think that inventory rebuild will continue to create demand, which will create jobs, which will create incomes and spending. And then third, we think we're just in the early stages of a CapEx cycle, which his recent years has been mainly tech. We think it's going to be fairly broad based. And that's also going to be a support for growth. You still have 11 million job openings out there right now. And while the pandemic slowing down is going to bring some people back to the labor market, we think to get all those people back in to reduce that that um, that gap, we are going to see significantly higher wages. We think the wage growth is going to be sticky. We think commodity prices are likely to be sticky. We think house prices will be sticky. All of those simply because supply can't meet demand. Well, um, Rebecca, within this scenario, here's what I'm struggling with. 5% inflation 12 months out means a serious bond market sell-off. It means a complete recalibration of longer-term real yields, of longer-term base uh, rates that the Fed can really address. How can the market continue to climb and the economy continue to be stronger than it has been pre-pandemic with that type of market turmoil? I, I think you just hit the nail on the head. What what I think we're shifting into right now is is really an inflection point versus the last 
20, 30 years. And we had central banks fighting deflationary risks. Bond yields were falling kind of structurally. And that was pushing people out into more risky assets, out into more stocks, and specifically longer duration stocks, because they'd benefit from that liquidity. So mm-hmm. where we were left is investors, long bonds, long tech and growth stocks specifically. And guess who has the most of those? The U.S. So now we're seeing a reversal of that entire thing. We're seeing higher inflation, pushing central banks to tighten, um, pushing people out of those long duration stocks, pushing people out of those bonds. I think that leaves the U.S. stock market relatively more vulnerable than a lot of markets Mm -hmm. overseas. We're not bearish on U.S. equities, but we think that the opportunity this year for the first time in many years is going to be more outside the U.S. than in for those reasons I just cited. Rebecca, I want to go back to your dark and clouded past and talk dollar and foreign exchange as well. Uh, To me, it's amazing the foreign exchange tightness, the range-bound nature of it. When it breaks, which way does dollar break? Oh, we're, we're wrestling with that one internally. You know, right now we have a mixed view on the dollar. We're, we're bearish on the dollar against some of these currencies that we think will benefit relatively more from commodity rises from that inflation uh, cycle. And then we're bullish dollar against some of the other reserve currencies, especially where the central banks don't face the same amount of pressure. Uh, Japan would obviously be a good example of that or something like uh, China, where we see them actually easing, and we think there's more easing to come. The really interesting thing, Tom, right now with the dollar is that you do have this Fed tightening cycle just just warming up right now, and higher yields traditionally have been a big support for a currency, but we also have a pretty wide current account deficit, so a big external financing need. Mm -hmm. And when I just mentioned a, a minute ago about all these people who've gone into the U.S., foreign allocations to U.S. stocks and bonds today are the highest they've been since the mid-80s. And so if we see that foreign money, maybe not all of it, but a piece of that coming out, harder to finance our current account deficit, that's going to be a pretty big bearish dollar pressure. And I think that is part of the reason in January, possibly, that we saw a dollar weaker despite yields going up, was that tech sell-off and some of those foreign investors maybe pulling back a bit. So I think it's going to be a much more unusual usual year for the dollar than you'd normally expect in a tightening cycle. Again, just watch the money. Watch where you see the the foreign capital going in and out of U.S. bonds and U.S. stocks. Rebecca, that was a clinic. Thank you. Rebecca Patterson there <laughs> of Bridgewater. We appreciate it. Right now, our math conversation for the day, we do that with Amy Wu Silverman, really quite good in the derivatives and the dynamics of the market at the Royal Bank of Canada, RBC. Amy, thank you so much for joining uh, this morning. I want to cut to the chase, which is you go cross-asset in your derivative analysis and look at equity presentation against optionality in the credit market. Explain that in English. Sure. You know, look, it's uh, it always makes options people a little nervous when you see a flurry of credit hedging. So people buying downside protection in HYG, the high yield bond proxy ETF, TLT, LQT. Uh, we've seen a lot of that, Tom, a lot. And even though we're getting that VIX number, as you said, kind of going back to sub 20 levels, that dynamic between the cross asset credit hedging Uh, not abating is a bit of a divergence from what we're seeing in equities right now. Amy, something's going on at the single name level as well. Facebook just having a massive monster move on a single day. That surprised a lot of people. But you take some signal from what happened with Facebook about the consumer at the lower end of the wage spectrum 
the lower end of wealth in the United States of America, and I'd throw in small business confidence as well. You've got the median numbers, the average, and you've got the top end numbers, which seem to blur the average. And Amy, there's something going on at the lower end that I think we've got to pay attention to. What are you looking at? Yeah, we've been quite fixated on this because, you know, something our economist Tom Porcelli has highlighted is, you know, that bottom quintile of folks are now at a point where their liquid assets are at, you know, lower than pre-pandemic levels. And whether or not that lead through has really been priced into options, you know, the short answer there, John, is it hasn't. So like an Ollie or a dollar uh, store, Dollar Tree, Dollar General, you know, the Walmart, Yum, all these cohorts where it's very leveraged, that low end consumer, uh, you're not seeing that concern yet weighted in the options pricing. And the second thing I'll say is this earnings season, options have really paid off. So even with those high VIX numbers, uh, going into Facebook, going into PayPal, going to all these earnings, options were probably implying, you know, relatively average implied moves, and we beat them by two or three times across the board. That's very unusual. And we think that continues in particular for these names leveraged that low end consumer. What would you what are you seeing then, Amy with Silverman, that's going against the common narrative that the lower income individuals are actually doing better? They're seeing disproportionate wage increases and they still have a lot of cash left over from the fiscal impulse last year. Yeah, you know, I, I think what, what is interesting is some of the read through that we've gotten from the recent reports would say that's not necessarily true. And, and you're also starting to say, see other companies who have yet to report, like I mentioned, like that Ollie's, where, uh, you know, that weakness is. So, it was, so I'll give you an example. Ollie normalized skews, that demand for hedging number this past weekend was trading at average and now today has spiked to an all-time high. So that's that downside skew number. So, you know, earlier this week and even last week, we were not seeing that start to be priced in, but now the options market is starting to flag that concern to the downside. And these, again, are all the names where they're in particular more leveraged uh, to that low-end consumer than they would be to kind of your middle-income or higher-end consumer. This is a specific uh, idiosyncratic trade targeting the likes of Walmart and Dollar General, as you were saying, companies that are to these consumers. However, is there a broader read-through to the other equity uh, parts that perhaps have seemed invulnerable so far? Yeah, so, you know, I think like that always goes back, Lisa, to how the meat is made. So if you're looking at a broader read-through to cues, you know, that's going to be more tech-heavy, whereas your IWMs, uh, you know, are less so. And you have seen the performance diverge there. But I will tell you overall on an on a, you know, ETF index level, Option prices have still been, you know, relatively okay. They have not shown that concern, even though we've seen a lot of demand for downside coming into the credit ETFs. And, you know, what we did is we ran uh, basically, you know, a cycle of what happens to S&P versus something like high yield during different rate cycles. And they remain highly correlated. So we're talking 80 plus percent correlation in different rate cycles, which tells me, you know, one way or the other, uh, someone is wrong. It's it's either the S&P or the IDBM or Qs, or it's going to be those credit bond proxy ETFs. So, Amy, just in terms of HYG at the moment, the junk bond ETF, how would you play that at the moment? Yeah, so, you know, look, something really simple is just to own HYG puts. And the reason I say that, even though we've seen that, you know, lift up in demand, is if you kind of pull HYG back to its full history, which includes the 2015 to 2017 rate hike, your skew levels are still in their bottom quartile, even though they look expensive now, if you just look at it on a pandemic basis. And one thing, one wrinkle I think you guys will remember is <clears throat> HYG was one of the names the Fed was buying in their facility 
last year. So I think to some degree, those numbers in the last two years are very skewed because HYG and other ETFs were actually being purchased by the Fed in the facility, you know, in and around this time, which is how most people look at their windows, which is why I think you go longer dated and you see that skew number is still relatively inexpensive, which means hedging is still relatively inexpensive. Really important conversation. Amy, thank you. As always, Amy Wu Silverman, the brilliant Amy Wu Silverman of RBC and that relationship, Lisa, between credit and equities. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.